Hello, we are the Manic Street Speakers. In 1985, we didn't place bets or lie. I was just starting school and Emma probably wasn't even potty trained. <laughs> How dare you? I was three in 1985. Well, you were a slow developer then. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up is our interview with Stephen Lee Nash on his two Manix books and the B-side for episode 11 is Antisocial Manifesto. But first, let me introduce you to the modern day Charlie Dimmock. Her fingers are so green, she makes Shrek jealous. It's the it's the girl who wanted to be Pod, Poddington oh, Peas, down at the bottom of the garden. It's Emma! Hey! I should point out that we have no idea whether anything I have planted in my garden is actually going to live, or if my usual trick of killing all plants will come into play. Just a clue, for, as someone who speaks from experience, if you put dead bodies in the garden, they don't grow. Oh no! I thought I had to plant the bodies of my enemies. Watering them, it just will not work. I've tried everything. I've got quite the collection. <laughs> I'm, one day you can show me. <laughs> no, don't, please God. Can I ask you a question, and a really important question? Please do. Are the worms in the garden more real than the McDonald's? Of course they are, Mikey, of course they are. <laughs> Speaking of Mikey, I'm going to do your intro. Your host of this podcast recently consumed a deep fried cream egg, which I'm sure we are all expecting a full review of, even though I failed to see how it could possibly match the dizzy heights of a deep fried Snickers. And if you want to know about his politics, he fully endorses Rogan the Dog's bid to become Mayor of St Thomas. <laughs> it's Mikey! Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm currently move, but in the process of moving house, so I'm gutted I'm moving out of an area called St Thomas, where there's posters all around. He's a famous local dog. Vote Rogan for Mayor of St Thomas. And I just, I, I can't leave a place in my heart that will be run by a dog. Oh, I would vote for Rogan if I lived in Exeter. I've recently got on the deep fried chocolate bandwagon. Yeah. Not that that such a thing exists. I mean, it probably does somewhere. The wheels of wagon wheels. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. Deep fried wagon wheel. I would try that. See, this shouldn't work, but hot batter and <clears throat> chocolate, and it just does. And with the cream egg, you've got that extra, extra like meltiness of the inside as well, and it was just, it was a sugar rush, and I loved it. I. I've only ever tried the classic deep fried Mars bar, deep fried Snickers, and a deep fried Bounty. And I, I'm not going to lie to you, I enjoyed bloody all of them, and I would eat all of them again, but my favourite was definitely the Snickers. Well, deep fried Bounty, might as well deep fried coconut. Oh, I'll give it a go. Basically, you can pretty much deep fry anything, can't you? Oh, absolutely. I tried that with the dead bodies in my garden too. <laughs> I bet they didn't taste as nice. I'm not a cannibal, I'm just a murderer, come on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. Uh, shall we start with the news? I think we should. Okay, in rather exciting news, a Manix album is expected this year. <laughs> that was my excited noise. Okay, can I get a squee? <laughs> Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you ask, you get. Uh, in a feature, I'm not going to be able to hear the new album now because that's just fucking sent my ears mad. Um, 
In a feature for Mojo magazine, Nikki has said it's the most rehearsed the band have been for an album. September has been provisionally marked as the release. What I have read so far, and I've read a few bits and pieces, I am genuinely very excited. And I don't know whether it's partly because of... We've all just come out of this very difficult year of crap. And this year is still very strange so far. So just having something that feels normal to look forward to. And, and you know, when you've been a Manics fan for a very long time, as we both have, you know, the expectation and the excitement surrounding a new album is that little bit of normality. It's what sort of is part of who we are. So I hate to be all deep and meaningful, but I'm in a bit of a deep and meaningful mood today. So that's what you're getting. I am really excited. Yeah, they described it as a subtle record with miserable lyrics and great pop and <laughs> and the Clash playing ABBA. I love the Clash and I love ABBA. Bring it on. Clabber. Clabber. Shabba. Oh god, no. <laughs> I'm 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 gonna veto that. Uh, um Oh yeah, this is an interesting thing. He says it doesn't feel like the time for spite. Yes, I read that. And I thought, really? Because we've got the most incompetent incompetent even corrupt government <laughs> that we've had for freaking years. I feel like being quite spiteful about that. Why don't you? Even though they still do lyrics, social commentary lyrics, it, it seems like he doesn't really want to tread on current issues in the country. They, yeah. they, like the things they, they've been referencing in recent years, I suppose, have been historical things. Which is a slightly bizarre situation for a, for a band that have always been so determinedly left-wing and anti-Tory to have this shower of shit in government and then be like oh well let's talk about something that happened 70 years ago instead it it just feels a little bit weird from the description to me it sounds like it'll be fairly stripped back and upbeat that's the kind of you know upbeat relatively speaking you know manic terms i mean musically the clash and abba you know that gives me a sort of up tempo type vibe I think, you know, we're talking possibly more Everything Must Go than Rewind the Film. Plus, there's a little bonus of James at the piano, which is something to look forward to. Mm, I'm, I'm into that. Do you think he'll get it out? God, this is, I'm going to rephrase that. <laughs> I'm going to rephrase that. Don't. Let's just leave you with that image. Leave it hanging. <laughs> James, when you go on tour, get it out. <laughs> For the front row. Yeah, I'll be there on the barrier. let's just move on um also set for september writer mark burrows is set to release a new book that discusses each of the band's albums um each lp will have a different writer offering an essay and critical analysis of each album that sounds deep it sounds deep rather than this podcast when we we do albums it'll just be us differing on they're going they're they're going for more uh, more intellectual highbrow, I think. <laughs> and not someone being like, James, get it out! <laughs> I don't know why they don't want that. You know, I think that's quality content. Coming up now is my interview with Stephen Lee Nash. We talk about his two books on the Mannix and... Dirty Dancing. Hey, the time of my life 
this way before. Yes, I swear, it's the truth, and I hope it. There seems to be a common link between pop culture and politics in your writing. Is that just two of your main interests merging together and, and resulting in what you do? Exactly, it is. And, uh, you know, to bring it back to our boys, the Manics, it really is their fault. You know, uh, you know th these, these guys have, like, merged pop culture, uh, low culture, high culture uh for you know three decades and uh this is just the way that i've been brought up by these guys you know from the age of 16 onwards uh film has always been like a big part of um sort of what i what i enjoy i studied film way back in uh the uh, late 90s and early 2000s back in leicester and uh you know, I, I spent a bit of time making films for a short time, um, music videos, documentaries and stuff like that back in Leicester. And uh, and then I kind of got a bit too old for it. So I decided I'd sort of write more about film. And that's kind of uh, what I did. I was a huge fan of the actor and director and artist Dennis Hopper. So I ended up writing a a book about him. Um, and again, I can trace I can trace most of all this back to either a, a quote or a line or some sort of uh, uh, ephemera from the Manic Street Preachers. You know, I, I came across Dennis Hopper because at one point the Manics all dressed like they came out of Apocalypse Now. I thought, what what is Apocalypse Now? I'll watch that film, Apocalypse Now, that you know they they quote from and. Uh, uh, you know, Richie Edwards uh, had a tattoo on his arm that said, like, I'll surf this beach. And uh, that leads directly back to Apocalypse Now. So I remember watching that film and then there go there turns up Dennis Hopper towards the end. And that's kind of where the uh, love affair with him begins. So I can trace pretty much everything that I've ever written back to them in some way or another. How were you introduced Huge. to the Manics? So back in sort of like the early 90s, um, I was sort of a metal fan and a fan of like Seattle grunge and stuff like that. Um, just, just through what my sort of older friends were listening to. Um, and then, uh, I would buy like the weekly ma uh, music magazines that focus more on that music. So not, not the NME or Melody Maker, but I would buy Krang magazine and Raw magazine and stuff like that. And the Manics were kind of in the periphery of those magazines. I wouldn't buy it for, because they were in it. I would buy it because Pearl Jam were on the cover or Soundgarden or someone like that. But, you know, there'd be an album review in there. Um, there'd be, um, a live review or something like that. So that I, I kind of was aware of them, but never musically at all. Like I hadn't, I don't think I listened to a, a single song uh, by them at all until much closer to uh, 96. Um, so they were there and I kind of just wrote them off as like a, a British, like, I mean, this was kind of like the Holy Bible era, I guess. They looked kind of like a British doom metal band, you know? like Paradise Lost or something like that. So I kind of just thought that they sounded like that. And I was like, that's not my thing. I'm not into that. So I didn't give them a listen. And then kind of Britpop happened in 95, uh, 94, 95, and uh, kind of ditched grunge and started listening to bands like Oasis and, and Blur and 
uh, you know, bands like that. And then the Manics kind of popped up again, kind of in 1996 uh, with uh, Design for Life. And I was just very, very suspicious of them, actually, because, you know, having known them as a band that, you know, dressed in, first of all, like Feather Boas, and then in military gear, and, uh, you know, now, now they were on... Uh, I don't know, like TFI Friday or something like that, just dressed in shirts and trousers and looking all sober and grown up. And I'm just very suspicious of them. I was like, what are these guys doing? You know, they're obviously just, you know, seeing the the, the cultural shift here and of uh, and are riding the coattails of this. So I just pretty much ignored them for the entire year until uh, Australia came out right at the end of 96. And I don't know, it, that song just switched me like right onto them. It was within a, it was right, it was this, it was right in the uh, beginning of December when that song was released. By the end of that uh, uh, month, I'd, you know, I'd got Everything Must Go for Christmas and it uh, it stayed in my CD player for a good six months. I just didn't, didn't take it off at all. Uh, and then, yeah, so 97 was pretty much devoted just to catching up. Um, going back and listening to uh, all their past records, waiting until birthdays to get their other records. So like my seventeenth uh, birthday, sixteenth birthday. Um, you know, I got Generation Terrorists, and then the summer of '97, I picked up uh, Gold Against the Soul and the Holy Bible, and then I just started collecting as well. Just going back and picking up the old, uh, uh, you know, the twelve-inch vinyls and just trying to, because it was, it was before the internet, right? So you couldn't just listen to a song that you saw in a, in a discography. You kind of had to go hunt it down. That's quite exciting, actually, um, to do that. Um, so yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. And then, you know, 90, 98 came around with, uh, This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. And that's the first time I saw them live. I went to Birmingham NEC, uh, to watch them. And, uh, yeah, that, that record had a, a big impact on me as well and it, it's just it's just continued ever since really there's been a few blind spots uh you know or times when i've just not stopped you know just stopped listening to them but i always always come back to them something can suddenly click because i was the same i i heard faster in about 94 95 liked it but didn't really discover it until everything must go and then all it takes is one song and then you go yeah i get it now but um the manics to me Absolutely. Uh, a prime example, like you say, everything you do kind of traces back to them uh, because they do merge media and pop culture. But in terms of changes in societal norms, how much do you think pop culture can have an influence on the mainstream? I, I think that uh, the, the era uh, of that is dead now. Um, but I don't think that it was. I think that, um, I think that changes to to culture have come through music and art going going back as far as we can uh you know remember but as in my sort of uh memory lifetime i mean i was obviously born in 81 but i'm very familiar with the, the 60s and 70s as well and um you uh you get a sense that music film and art movements did change the direction of society and culture but and I think that kind of continues right up until the 90s, actually. But I think it's dead now, and I think it's been dead for about 20 years. You know, it's kind of this. Uh, I I don't want to like you know 
get all weird, conspiratorial or anything like that, but kind of post 9-11, I think culture is pretty much stuck now in that era. We're, we're just in the post 9-11 era and we're not, we've not managed to scrape out of it. Um, I don't think music's pushing us out of any, any of it. Film isn't, but I think, it, I think film should. And uh, I think art movements as well. But I, I think I look at, I look at, I mean, actually just recently, David Bowie, I've not been a fan of Bowie at all, but my, uh, um, my sort of understanding of him at the moment is, uh, he, he just, he, he moved f- through the culture and pushed it so far. It's, it's hard to even imagine. Cause the thing is my, my Bowie is the, is the nineties Bowie, right? <laughs> And I don't think that, you know, I'm, the music that he was making then wasn't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, you got to sort of think, man, he really moved with the times, but like he also pushed against it as well, like before that. Um, so, yeah, my sort of rec- recollection of him is, 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 is the 90s version. But man, when you when you sort of look at him in like the 60s and 70s, it's just incredible what he was doing. And I, yeah, you know, the Manics have said this in their last record. We won't see the likes of that again, you know. And I, I think it's true. I don't think we will. And I think with this pandemic as well, like, I think it's even going to be worse now because, you know, we've got this black hole right now of bands who could have probably formed and could have um, uh, could have done something incredible. But, like, they physically can't, right? Like, they physically can't get in a room anymore and uh, and practice and and make plans, you know, and I think... Or even plays in the local pub or anything like that, they can't even get to that stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, obviously you can you can have communication because the internet is there, but, man, I just don't know if internet communication is, 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 uh, is how you form a sort of uh, cultural idea, you know, I don't think you do on the internet, I think it's done in person, I think it's done in, in collective... Uh, a collective way, whereas the internet, you know, it's it's one person sitting behind a computer, possibly talking to thousands of people, but ultimately there's no collective movement. I think you have to get together. So you know that part of the reason why you you think we're stuck because because of the internet, because of social media, it's just so much noise that anything piercing through is going to be so difficult. Exactly, it is, and I think uh, you know. Uh, just a couple of examples from the past year was like you know the Black Lives Matter marches across the world uh, did actually bring people together, and I think that that was really exciting. And like um, I saw just before we got online today and started talking, you know, I saw um, the uh, the visual um, that happened in uh, in Clapham Common. And the reaction against that, or a reaction to that, uh, from the police is uh, is horrific. But it is it is people getting together and and trying to change something. And I think that that is really important. Without and you know the internet's not involved at all, which is fantastic. I mean, maybe there was maybe there was communication about how this how this comes together, but ultimately it was people coming together to try and sort of enact a, a you know a cultural shift. In both cases, you know. Um, so I think that that's really important. So yeah, I think you're right. Actually, the internet has kind of like this. This it's like this white noise, right? And we've just got to try and hear above it, but you can't because there's just it's constant. Um, before we get onto the manics, I need to ask you. According to you, dirty dancing is is not just about sexy people dancing. It's there's a whole 
different level to it. So I, I feel I need to now watch Dirty Dancing and get your book on de- deconstructing Dirty yeah. Dancing. Yeah. Oh, it, it is a film about people dance, dancing in a sexy manner, absolutely. But no, you're right. It is. I. It is more. So that that book kind of came out of uh, uh, out. It it kind of came out of my very first book actually, um, in which I kind of uh, wrote a, a short uh, chapter on Dirty Dancing in that book, and was disappointed that I didn't expand on it further. So um, I kind of spent six or seven weeks just sitting at home watching Dirty Dancing almost like frame by frame and uh, it, uh, you know it's kind of one of those things It's um, and in, in the book I talk about this a lot you know there was a love for that film when I was a kid because of the music and because of uh, uh, well you know just I guess because of Swayze really you know he's such a such a manly figure you know I kind of wanted to attain that in some way um but then when you start getting older and you know you start uh hanging out with uh with girls a bit more who who continue to watch dirty dancing you realize that dirty dancing becomes kind of a barrier almost and you know you can never be that good um but then after a, a bit of cultural education i suppose and kind of getting back into that film in my sort of late 20s and early 30s, you kind of realise there's a lot going on. There's a lot of uh, class politics. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's just a really great movie, actually. Uh, it, it's interesting because it's... I kind of, like, have exhausted myself from ever watching it again, I think. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be able to sit down and watch it again. But, you know, that's that's the thing, actually. The, the soundtrack is, is never been a problem with that film. Like, I've always really stood by that the soundtrack to that movie. It's uh, it's fantastic. Apart from uh, the kind of more, like, 80s songs. But the origi- the sort of original soundtrack that includes, like, 50s and 60s uh, sort of standards. Um, still great. Yeah, yeah, still good. I, I would really recommend watching it. I, I, I don't think you have to read my book alongside it. I just think that it's a, it's a movie to just open yourself up to and uh, kind of take it in the context of uh, what was going on um, when the film was actually set, which is like 63, and what was happening in kind of the America that it was released into, which was the late 80s, kind of the Reaganite era. So you kind of—it's interesting because it's you know a film that's set in the Kennedy era, and released in the Reagan era, and the differences are kind of you know are very obvious. I think of what was going on culturally in those, in those different times. Has it aged well? There's a lot of talking now about like films from seventies and eighties in terms of like the politics of the day. I think it's aged tremendously well, and I think the reason for that is firstly because it was released in the eighties, but set in the nineteen sixties, so it was already a nostalgia piece even then. Um, uh, the only, uh, issue I find really is, um, well, the lack of, uh, black representation in the film and the, the black character, the only sort of black characters are servers or something like that, you know, uh, not even the dancers, I think, I mean, uh, people of color. So that, that's, that's kind of one thing that I think you can definitely put down to, uh, down to its era in which it was released, but I think uh, yeah, I don't I don't see any problematic um, uh, parts of that film. I think it's held up really well, actually, and a very good 
uh, representation of what a healthy relationship should be. Could you see yourself doing that with another film? Um, I, th- I don't think I would do it again with another film, no. I think um, it, that was kind of like, with that book, it was kind of a few options. I had like a few films in mind that I would love to sort of break down piece by piece. Dirty Dancing came up because it kind of had a bit more in it. Like, you know, some of the, the other films didn't have... Um, you know, uh, like uh, representations of uh, like feminism and stuff like that. And I really wanted to dive into that a little bit. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't see myself doing that with another film, really. There's a, there's a few which I like am obsessed with and I would love to dive into a bit more. But um, they, and, and more from recent as well. There's a film I watched. I've watched it a couple of times called. Um, oh, my gosh. The title is just eluding me now. Uh, Under the Silver Lake. Um from a few years ago which is kind of like a almost like david lynch type of film um but is so weird and magical and uh yeah i'd I'd recommend that film to anybody and i yeah that's one film that i would love to sit down with and try and uh and try and break down but um it, it is an exhausting process i gotta tell you it is quite exhausting to sit with one movie for six weeks and uh break it down in the same way that like when you write about the manics or or a film does it skewer your opinion of them even if it's something you love you know can you just get a bit jaded by it i was worried about that actually with uh with going into know your enemy for uh for the book riffs and meaning um i was worried that i would would um would destroy it for myself um because as, as i said like you know i've not really gone back to uh to a film like Dirty Dancing, I haven't really gone back to it in the, since since writing about it. Um, but thankfully, it didn't. You know, um, uh, I think I found I found more in that record actually than than that than I even first originally thought was in there. So that's that's quite interesting. So I'm glad that it didn't it didn't ruin it that for me. But uh, yeah, I think it. Yeah, I think it could, but it, it it didn't for this record, didn't on this example. What made you write a book about potentially like one of the Manic's most disregarded times, some by critics and sometimes their own fans? What made you draw on that and go, right, I'm going to write a book about that? Um, so kind of around about 2015, 2016, I was like, I really want to write about the Manic's. Like, I just want to write a, uh, um, a, a book about them. Uh, but when you sort of like look at their history and, and, you know, even at this, even at that point, I guess it was just kind of post futurology. Um, it's just immense. It's just so big. You know, when you look at Simon Price's book, um, that was published in 99, I think it was 98, 99. And that's a big chunky book, right? But that only takes in 10 years, really. So that's, you know, another a decade and a half on top of that it it would just been a, a massive massive book and i the task just kind of seemed huge um but i i wanted to persevere so i i continued to sort of try and break into different sort of ways of uh i don't know talking about the manics in a more uh concise way and i think it i think initially it started so i, I wrote i wrote a chapter on on uh their or at the time it was just an essay i suppose on um, the B-sides of, of the Manic Street Preachers and how the B-sides are kind of uh, indicators of where they might go in the future, you know? Um, but again, I mean, that's that's our 
that's huge as well. They've you know they've had over forty singles, so that's that's massive as well. Um, but then I thought, well, why don't I just bring it down to an era, which I think is like a really cool era. And I thought the Know Your Enemy B sides are actually um, a really great time. And it was the one time as well that even the Manics thought so because uh, I didn't it didn't get released in uh, in um, in the UK or or North America or you know to the West, but in in Asia they released actually like a a, sl- a little EP called uh, No R B Sides, and it was just the B sides from the No Your Enemy period. Um, and I was like, uh, so you know, it was a time that they were actually quite uh, enjoying their own B sides, and uh, the 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 songs that came out of there were I thought really great. Um, and then it kind of occurred to me that, like, you no, know, your enemy itself is almost a kind of uh, a pivotal record, and I mean that quite literally. I mean, you can kind of use no, your enemy to kind of pivot around the Manic Street Preachers' whole career. You know, you, you can look back to their iconoclist eras. You know, in in Generation Terrorists and uh, and um, Holy Bible, and at least politically, anyway. And you know, you can kind of hear the uh the more sort of um anthem orientated stuff that they did for everything must go and this is my truth tell me yours um uh so yeah i I thought it was a that was just like a a good record and then you know i kind of thought well it, it is still in my top three you know it's it's not number one or number two but it hovers around number three mostly and so it's a good record to write about i was i was young when it came out i was 20 turning 21 so it was kind of an interesting um time of my life as well uh and uh just remember being like totally immersed in them at that period of time and they could just do no wrong uh in in my regard and you know they went to Cuba and played in Cuba and Castro showed up and I just thought it was I just and still to this day I think it's just one of the best things you know that they've ever done uh there might be a lot of regret from them uh but I I I genuinely think that it was an amazing moment uh again kind of like what we were talking about at the very beginning of this uh about kind of how we can move culture on and stuff like that it probably it it, it felt like that to me it felt big you know it felt like um ah like a band-aid size event it wasn't you know i i know that now but you know like then i, was, I thought this is culturally amazing like this is like you know my generation's woodstock or something like that <laughs> Whether people agree with it, with the the Castro thing, or or even the gig in the first place, what they did was kind of rock and roll. You know, they could have sat, and that's yeah. why I like the Know Your Enemy era so much. They could have sat on them on the laurels. They could have just played it safe. They could have released another album like This Is My Truth, and they would have raked in the money. They would have raked in the sales. They wanted to challenge themselves and the fans. I think they wanted to go. No, we can do this, and that's. You know, yeah. whether you even twenty years later we can go. Well, okay, that's a bit. Mm. But they did it, and that's. If we're, yeah. if we're talking like about things piercing through, if you don't do something like that, there's no chance of anything piercing through, is there? Exactly, and I'm sure the people who attended Woodstock probably ten years, twenty years later didn't think that it had much of an effect either. But you know, it's just kind of one of those things. I think that it did. 
uh it was just very cool and then you know the music itself like the record itself is uh it's i mean it's it's a huge record i mean it's over 70 minutes long um and it's so diverse which is again kind of a wonderful thing about going into that record is it's not just a collection of 12 anthems it's uh you know there's a lot of dirge on there too you know but i mean even the even the songs which i don't think are that great like they're still worthy of some analysis you know yeah it's very eclectic isn't it very very um i mean yeah i still i still stand by miss europa disco dancer i still think that's a great song um yeah, you know, songs like The Convalescent, kind of some of the best lyrics, I think, of it, that have been written by by Nicky Wire, anyway. Um, you know, the, the sleigh bells on So Why So Sad still kind of make me happy, still kind of give me a little uh, a little cheer, you know. Um, Let Robeson Sing is, is still just like, I mean, even more prominent now, I would say, even than back then, I think. But, you know, it's such a great record. Yeah, so, you know, it was a joy to sort of dive into that record and, and write about it. No Your Enemy was one of those fight-back times. It's them, I guess, kicking off and going, right, we can still do this. We can still rock, I guess, in the loosest terms. But yeah. I wonder, I don't know what your opinion of Resistance is Futile is. Like, to me, I like the album, but there's not... In terms of... it's It doesn't feel that cohesive to me. I think all their albums have a a feel and a atmosphere to them and a and a direction about them and to me resistance is futile feels like one of those dips what do you think of resistance um i actually do i do like it but i do know what you mean it's it there isn't a coherence to that record it's more of a collection of songs i kind of reminds me a bit actually of um gold against the soul actually because uh again like amazing singles from that record and uh but when it when you kind of when it hangs together i i don't know like it's it's just sort of uh it doesn't feel like it has a coherent message um and it's the same with resistance is futile i think um but yeah i mean like again sort of like international blue was the first song that really anybody of any of us heard from that and it just hit me straight away as such a kind of great song like how are they writing songs like that this far into their career without having written them before you know and hold me like a heaven is another example of that as well like i that could slip in that could one day slip into my top 10 of manic street preacher songs because um it's it's just so so incredible and it's like how did they the mind sort of boggles a little bit it's like how did they never think of this you know 20 years ago you know how is this only coming to them now so they've still got a lot of lot of energy and a lot of juice but yeah there's there's certain songs on that record which i I don't really like and i think it's just because really it's more uh it's the manics pushing the an idea without actually writing a good song about it so like the idea of writing a song about um the uh uh vivian that's a great idea i mean she captured so much of the american lifestyle i suppose or you know life during that time and but the manics just wrote a song that just goes vivian oh vivian and it's like oh man yeah okay like you know i think it took it took my wife who isn't a manic street preachers fan to point that out and it's like yeah it didn't do such a great job on that one i guess did they and and um yeah vivian yep we get it (laughs) yep 
Vivian? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of just repeating the name again. Yeah, name again and again. So yeah, I do. Um, I do like the record, but uh, I'm looking forward to whatever they do next. Hopefully this year, you know, we do get a new record. And I was a, uh, I was te- quite taken with James Dean Bradfield's solo record as well, even in Exile, which came out last year. I think it came out just at the right time. You know, we're all kind of like um, bored as hell. And, uh, you know, sitting around with this pandemic going on and it kind of came out. It was kind of a nice little release to have that record out. Uh, it's quite quite diverse record too. So I don't know, like the influences that they take forward, it, it could could make an interesting next record. Especially, you know, if Nicky Wire's kind of electronic record comes out as well. <laughs> we, could have quite an, we could have a quite an interesting year. Uh, so I kind of hope we're in for another record a bit like futurology actually um where they where they can sort of strike that balance between being a little bit experimental because uh, you know i think futurology and and rewind the film have some really wonderful like experimental um flourishes alongside just really great like choruses and really great james dean bradfield riffs and great bass work and drum work and stuff like that like you know I really hope we're in for that kind of a, a, a record actually next. But we'll see, I guess, yeah. One thing on Know Your Enemy, um, there has been a lot of rumours the last few months of a 20th, cent, uh, 20th anniversary release. Seems to have gone a bit quiet, hasn't it? But yeah. Maybe the demos would be an interesting thing to hear from, from Know Your Enemy. Well, the demos would be interesting, yeah. I mean, that's that's a really good uh, good point. I'd love to hear some of the earlier sort of stuff that they... Uh, yeah, how those songs kind of developed. Um, but yeah, a package that would include the B-sides and things like that. And like, I'm sure that there's like loads of unpublished photographs uh, from the even even the recordings, and but also just from the Cuba gig. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's tons of stuff. Yeah, it'd be amazing to dive back in and, and yeah, have, have that reissued somehow. Um but yeah, it seems to have gone. It seems to have gone a little bit quiet. Yeah, if it's anything like Gold Against the Soul, they'll probably release it on the twenty third anniversary. Or <laughs> exactly, they don't want to be uh, accused of cashing in right on an anniversary, so they do it the next. They do it the following year. Your new book. How did it come about? Did he just think? Yeah. You know about Mannix. You write about them. Yeah, yeah. Actually, so uh, the uh, previous three books were written by uh, a guy called Tom uh, Boniface Webb, who uh, lives out in uh, New Zealand. Um, and I'd, I'd spoken to him a few years ago about a book that he'd uh, written called I Was Britpopped. Well, he'd, he'd written, actually co-written it, uh, with another author called I Was Britpop, which is kind of like just an A to Z of, of Britpop bands and, and Britpop uh, moments and stuff. And, uh, I was doing a bit of podcasting for, uh, uh, a, a podcast series called, uh, New Books Network and where I was focusing on books on music. So I reached out to him and we had a uh, a podcast conversation that's uh, out on the uh, New Books Network uh, channel, and uh, yeah, I kind of just kept, I kind of just kept in touch with him actually because um, yeah, he's a nice guy, got on with him well, really liked his book, and then um, uh, end of last year, oh no, sorry, end of 2020 or beginning, oh gosh, I'm getting my years mixed up now, sorry, uh, end of 2019 or beginning of 2020, I just happened to come across a review that he'd written for Riffs and Meaning, and it was lovely, it was a very critically engaged review, and I was 
so I, so I reached out to him and just said, hey man, like thanks so much for writing that lovely review. Um, that's really, really nice of you. And and then I just said, well, you know, what are you up to now? And he said, oh, I've just started this series called Modern Music Masters. I'm writing the Oasis book as we speak. And uh, I think he told me actually on that podcast that we recorded that that's kind of what he wanted to do. He wanted to sort of pull out the bands from this Britpop book and... Um, yeah, you know, write that, write full sort of books on on each one. So he'd written, he'd like halfway through the Oasis book, and then uh, that was published, I think, um, in April last year. And I got a copy just to support him. Looked at it, I thought, hey, this this looks really good, like like what he's done. And then reached out to him again, and he was already writing book number two and book number three. And uh, I didn't really think much more of it, actually, but I sort of, but he did sort of say, you know, if you've got any ideas about artists that you want to write about, and I was, you know, racking my brains for a while about who I could write about. Um, And uh, around about sort of September last year, um, the the, the pandemic was kind of, uh, was kind of getting to me a little bit. I was working on another book which is going to be coming out later this year which is not about music or the manics but about a film um and i was kind of just editing that and uh i don't know i I wasn't i wouldn't say like i was feeling depressed but just kind of uh just feeling a bit down because we'd had a pretty good summer here in canada the pandemic had kind of shifted down a little bit you know we were only dealing with a handful of cases every every day and and then sort of in September, it started creeping up again. And, uh, you know, uh, and I, I just sort of thought, you know, man, I need a break from this. Like I need a, I need to sort of get back into a, a, a world in which I can kind of be happy in. So um, I reached out to him and just said, hey, look, if you want me to write a book on the Manics, I'll do it. Like I'll gladly do it. And uh, he just said, you know what, send me like an introduction. Uh, what, what would the introduction look like? So I just, you know, knocked out a 2000 word introduction in the space of a few hours that felt like minutes right like that's the that's the beauty of sometimes when you get into a really good writing project it you know it can feel so so good it felt like flying and it felt really good to just be writing about something that was joyful uh not to say that the the book that I was working on at the time wasn't joyful it's just that you I was past the writing stage I was in the editing stage and the structural changes which kind of are not are not as free flowing as just as just tapping it out on a keyboard on a keyboard you know so I thought you know this is going to be a joyful experience just to write this book for a few months so I'll just throw myself into it and you know what if it doesn't pan out at least I'll have had you know, or at least I would have raised my spirits a little bit during the sort of, especially because, you know, we're, we're in Canada, when you start getting into September, October, you realize that winter is coming and uh, winter is long in Canada, you know. So, um, you know, yeah, I kind of so I thought, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to, you know, I've written a book, written a book about the Manics already, but like that book is an opinion piece, really. Um and this book will be different because it ties into a series and it's just a narrative stroll through the Manic Street Preacher's career, basically from start to finish, or at least start to where we are now. So yeah, like that's how the book came about and that's kind of how I wrote it. I wrote it very quickly and uh, it just made the winter 
like flyby, which is exactly what I wanted really out of out of that experience. And uh, yeah, Tom was Tom was super happy with the book. It fits in with the series really nicely. Uh, the series as it stands now, uh, it fits in really nicely. And you know, this is this is book four in the series. I know that there's three more coming in the next six months or so. Yeah, what I like about it is while you have uh, little bits of sound bites of your opinion of certain things, I like the fact that it's so regimented in the sense that it spans their career and it does it really thoroughly but really quickly did you have to say that you've got a certain amount of words and that's it oh yeah that's the other thing too like uh, that's the that's kind of a an interesting thing as well because it's the first book that i've ever written to order you know so like usually i just i'm i'm writing a book and then I will seek a publisher for that book. You know, I won't write with a contract in mind. I'll just write because I'm enjoying it. And then, um, you know, sort of uh, down the line is when when I I reach out to a publisher and then we work on the book of, of how it should be out. So that's what happened with Rifts of Meaning. I wrote that book for two years before sending it on to a publisher. Uh, so yeah, this was interesting because it was the first book to order. So there were certain things that you had to had to do so you had to put in the little uh boxes that contain all the singles and albums chronologically um so that was you know uh interesting and painstaking process um and yeah the word count um basically like the work the the word count cutoff was like 50,000 words so i knew it had to be concise and i think i think mine just kind of comes in under like 40 basically so yeah, did you did you approach it differently? Were you literally just I'm just going to follow their career and write it as I see it, and then, then if you needed to crop anything out afterwards? Yeah, basically. I mean, there, there's a, a couple of just it, it follows that kind of pattern absolutely, but then uh, there's a few chapters in there as well that kind of just lean out of the narrative for a short time. So you know, I, I've included a a chapter in there on on Richie Edwards, and I just I just threw in. A review of uh, the documentary No Manifesto, just because um, I, I I quite liked that film, and but the review of it was you know quite critical. Um, so I wanted to kind of just throw in a few bits and pieces uh, to kind of just divert the narrative a little bit. So yeah, like I, I, so the way that I started it really was just writing it like from the very beginning and just following it through. Did you find maybe not as exciting as because obviously the uh, their early stuff of their career is about the myth and the rock and roll and the drama, and now it's more about well they've gone to a studio done that tour. It's not it's you know they're late forties but early fifties. Yeah. It's not going to be the same kind of thing. Yeah, I mean that's the thing too. Like I always kind of kept in mind that this is uh, a music masters series, right? So I had to kind of focus on what the music was saying i'm not a musician so i can't speak musically uh about how the songs are structured and things like that but i can certainly talk about how the the songs feel and what they represent and uh, lyrically what they talk about um but yeah i i i I suppose you're right it does kind of get a little bit um the the sort of last chapter really is uh is you know uh band going into recording studio recording the songs releasing um i found actually that the resistance is futile part of the uh 
of the book which is is only a you know a few pages but it's hard because like not much going on around that record but man they released six songs from that record you know so it's it's hard to engage critically with six singles uh you know that were released in very quick succession which had no physical release no b-sides uh maybe one or two um but mostly they were just released for for streaming um no real artwork to engage with you know when you think they released six singles at the at, at that point of their career and the six or seven singles that they released off their debut record you know you can really talk about those six singles from generation terrorists or seven singles because there's lyrical rabbit holes to fall down there's uh, artwork there's b-sides there's music videos and again like you know the music videos that came from resistance is futile uh, futile are are pretty good but they're perfunctionary uh live performances basically you know um so yeah quite interesting but you know i mean still sort of like talking about rewind the film might not be a particularly engaging time but the again like the music videos that came from that uh from that record tell a really interesting story about wales you know um and welsh and kind of welsh valley culture and um and futurology was an interesting record to engage with just because of how much kind of diversity is on that record too and and lyrically kind of what a lot of the songs deal with there so it, you're right it's not it's definitely not as it hasn't got that sort of like um you know flash and color that was in the early part of their career or even even the mid part of their career when you sort of think about uh send away the tigers or journal um yeah but it's still an interesting time for the manics for sure so you that late, late later period yeah did uh going through discography literally in chronological order did it make you review some of their albums or their work or did it give you a different impression of it did you like something more did you like something less or did it or was your view pretty much cemented all the way through uh, it's pretty cemented anyway really i mean you'd, you'd kind of come to the obvious conclusion that the manic street preachers kind of released one record that kind of uh tries to set an agenda and then the next record kind of dispels it a little bit you know and i think that one's been like in the manix canon for quite some time you know um so just looking at that it's an interesting thing to write about because you you do sort of get that sense of like they they want to like push themselves and and be big and then suddenly they don't want to be anymore or you know and i think the the biggest example of that is kind of uh know your enemy and lifeblood really like know your enemy is this very kind of vitalistic record of uh you know uh incredibly like diverse music and uh putting themselves out as kind of like an almost like internationalist socialist band you know, by going out and playing in Cuba and being very uh, upfront about their politics. And then you have Lifeblood, which is like completely devoid of all of that. And they're just all, you know, dressed in white. And yeah, it's it's much more opaque. And I think that that's the biggest sort of... I think they had leather jackets at that stage, didn't they? There was, some, there was a bit of leather jackets, yeah. Especially in the um, uh, Empty Souls video. I think they got a bit of leather jackets in there. Um, 
I don't know, like, I, Lifeblood gets a lot of flack, but you got to remember, they released Ri- The Love of Richard Nixon as the first single, <laughs> which is mad. <laughs> what do you think the band's legacy will be? I know that's a big question, but when they finally call it a day? Yeah, this is a pretty interesting question. Um, if... I don't... It, it sounds horrible to say this, because we, we talked about this earlier in the in our conversation about kind of culture being stuck right now. And I think the issue is that bands that do continue on will slowly become diminished. Uh, The returns will be diminished. So like the Manic Street Preachers now, um, you know, if, uh, if they had split up in the early two thousands or whatever, something had happened to them. um, I think their cultural impact would have been, potentially bigger than if they split up this year you know um but it, it just kind of depends on what they do i mean these these concerts that they've got lined up for nhs workers again i think that's a, just an amazing gesture and an amazing thing to do um i i think that uh the past sort of 20 years post know your enemy has kind of just been more of a uh you they have just become more of a band i guess whereas previous to that they were uh you know a kind of uh oh i don't know like a cultural signposters basically you know um i still think that happens lyrically but back then in the 90s and early 2000s it was more about the things that they said and did um their legacy, though, I still think is going to be solid. Like, I don't think it's going to be um, something that vanishes when they when they do eventually split up, uh, because I think that they are still drawing in uh, young people. Um, people are still discovering them as a band, not not necessarily through their new music. Um, but it's interesting, I guess, because you know the way that they started. They they are becoming almost kind of a a legacy band, uh, uh, like a like a Led Zeppelin type band, you know, um, where where the legacy matters more than the music sometimes. So I don't know. Um, interesting interesting thing to think about. I just I just feel that culture itself is probably not going to be uh, sort of it's so it's so stuck right now that I just don't think it matters anymore. Whereas I think 20 years ago, it would have, it, it would have mattered 20 years ago. It would be, it would be massive if the Manics would have ended, but now, you know, they'll play their farewell concerts and we'll all just move on, but without, without moving on. <laughs> I was speaking to um, somebody recently about Radiohead actually, because I, I stopped listening to Radiohead uh, just after Kid A, basically. Maybe, maybe I listened to Amnesiac. Um, but like I culturally, I, I've just disengaged from that band completely, but I realize that there's 20 years there of just like incredible music that hasn't really maybe like topped the charts or anything like that, but is like, I don't know. I think Radiohead made, made a really great, uh, judgment call there by kind of retreating away from being like the sort of band that they were during the Benz or uh, OK Computer and being more of a studio band. Um, it certainly seems like they've been making 
like way more interest in music uh, in the last 20 years than they say that they did during like the mid 90s. So the Manics could the Manics could do something similar. I don't know, but I feel like it's already too late in their career, and that they are also too much of a traditionalist kind of rock band. You know, they're very much relying on guitars, bass, and drums, whereas Radiohead kind of branched out into more electronica and uh, more kind of experimental music. Uh, not to say that the Manics couldn't do that, because I think that they could. It's just that they are uh, uh, the, the the sort of be all and end all is that they are a, a rock and roll band, you know. Whereas Radiohead, uh, I don't think ever were. They they tried to be for a little while, but I think they realised that you know, um, music. They were more musically uh, innovative than the perhaps mainstream music would allow them to be. I don't know. So yeah, quite an interesting interesting fact. I'm 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 now sort of in the process of going through. Uh, Radiohead's music post Kid A so and I'm just finding it like so satisfying (laughs) it's so good is there another band or artist that you would in time want to write a book about not in the same way um uh yeah so like there's a guitarist called Omar Rodriguez Lopez who uh was the guitarist of um at the drive-in Mars Volta and uh and now is a solo artist and who's who's like released 50 plus solo records like his career i find absolutely fascinating and he's still quite young as well like he's not even like an old guy he's maybe just a year or two older than me um his 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 music and his sort of approach to art and creativity i think is worthy of a book uh, or is at least worthy of some sort of document, you know. Um, the, the, at the drive-in were a pretty big band for me back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and then Mars Volta were pretty big as well. Um, and then these solo records of his, like, it's hard to catch up with them, really. He's not released one for a couple of years, so, like, right now I'm just kind of in the... I mean, I'm still... If I was listening to them chronologically, I'd probably only be in the mid-2000s or early... 2010s i don't know like they just they come out every they they used to come out every six months or so you know so he like he is like i mean not not his bands as such but him himself i think is a very interesting person to want to to write about but tackling it would be immense right because there's there's 50 plus records plus the band's records you know mars volta did about six or seven a drive-in did maybe three or four and then there's all sorts of side projects too he did he was in a band called bosnian rainbows which uh, released a record in 2013 it's their only record but it's an incredible record um so he's like you know he's moved in different directions and then retreated and gone in other directions it's just an incredible thing i i would have liked to have maybe started that book maybe uh i don't know 15 years ago maybe and uh caught up on it but if i was if i was thinking about that that would be uh that would be something i think uh to to tackle yeah i think he's a he, he is a very creative individual yeah okay and we wrap up i'm gonna ask you for not necessarily your favorite manic song just to play out with but maybe one that means something to your yeah yeah so i i thought about this one a little bit and i'm gonna choose a song it's not an obscurity but it's called all alone here uh it's a b-side from um empty souls and it's a song that i only 
discovered this year. <laughs> so back in the day when I was buying singles uh, in, on all the formats from uh, the Lifeblood era, I just rarely, rarely listened to them because um, I just wasn't necessarily interested in that record. And I think it's a big shame because, you know, there's some great, obviously some great music. Lifeblood's changed for me anyway um, over the last sort of like 10 uh, well, five to ten years, but yeah, all alone here is a song that I just like discovered this year, and uh, it's such a, an amazing song. Like, I, I don't know why it, it wasn't on the record; it should have really been. Um, James's voice is incredible. There's this beautiful guitar motif that's kind of happening in the back. Um, lyrically, it kind of reminds me of like walking around a sort of a, a, an empty city or something like that. It kind of has that vibe, and I think this year as well with the pandemic. We've kind of all faced that, you know, walking around our towns and cities that are basically deserted. And that's kind of the way that it feels to me. So it's a song that, like, I've just played an awful lot this year. Uh, so I'd love I'd love more people to hear that song. So if we can, we can play out with that one. The dreams of this city Leave no room for self-being We're all alone here So all alone here Always make the difference Even when there is no chance We're all alone here So all alone here And the So the next B-side is... What is it? <laughs> Anti-Social Manifesto. Thank you. Uh, it was B-side to Futurology, which was released on 22nd of September 2014. I'm never tempted to ask or include I'm always happier to self-delude And on and on and on it goes The first thing that springs to mind for me about this is it is no surprise that Nicky sings this. It's classic downbeat angry tirade which he excels in like on yeah. ballads of the bangkok novotel or his own solo work and, <laughs> and i think his vocals suit the negativity yeah I, he has got the kind of tombra shall we say to his voice that if you want to talk about something you're pissed off with get nikki to sing it yeah it's it the lyrics as well it's both inward and outward hatred and you've got two different lines like i'm never tempted to ask or include i'm always happier to self-delude and then there's a line that goes i want to avoid human contact yeah i mean that's very relatable but he's also got i'm awkward amongst people stupid angry and so weakened so that's pure insecurity just coming out isn't it 100 percent. that is i mean this is basically the ballad of the introvert 
But I like how musically it feels. I don't know if industrial is a word, but more mechanical because industrial implies that it's heavy. But yeah. it kind of halfway through robotically cranks up the pace. Then that yeah. leads to the weird chanting at the end. I have written. This song plods along initially a little bit like wading through treacle until it picks up gently when James's guitar solo kicks in but then it does its random new turn into some kind of punk funk fusion which I prefer to the slow opening but which does feel slightly incongruous but that said I do not hate it <laughs> now that sounds, that sounds very negative but my best friend likes to say I don't hate it about things she likes <laughs> so there you go I almost feel like if it stuck to the funkier vibe all the way through, I'd probably rate it more highly than I have. Purely because I really like that that sound is the sound of a band experimenting with a style not usually associated with them. I enjoy the negative lyrics and the angry Nicky vocal. As it stands, a three star from me. Ooh, okay. Yeah, like it's interesting you pointed out um, the guitar work because... There is a lot of subtle James guitar work going on and a song that yeah. isn't really... You wouldn't think it would lead to that kind of thing. I do like this song. I don't want to get hate. Don't send me a hate. Um, I do like this song. I, there's something about it that feels a little bit stuck together with, like, sticky tape or something. There's just something a little bit incongruous um between and these you know they are not the, uh, the first band to have done a slow intro and then get faster that is a fairly tried and tested method uh, of songwriting and i like it i just i prefer the sort of when it does get to this sort of punk funk as i have called it tempo to the beginning because the beginning does have a little bit of a Whilst I think Nicky's voice suits the lyrics he's singing, there is a little bit of a, oh, God, <laughs> overall, which which does sort of make me go, okay, <laughs> now move on. For that reason, it's not a song I actively seek out a lot. They've got an idea there, and I feel like they could have built on the idea more. It's interesting, but it feels like... Because it's over quite quickly, it feels like a half-formed idea. Yeah, that's it. I think there is a... It's, it's like a German of, a, of an idea, and it, it hasn't pollinated into a flower. I'm very into my gardening at the moment, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would give it two and a half, I think. I, Like I say, it's good, it's just... I think it pro it's probably half-formed. There is a book called The Antisocial Manifesto, A Bipolar Perspective on Dissent from Society. Now, I don't know if this has any bearing on Nicky's thinking and writing the lyrics or whether it's just a coincidence, I'm not sure. Quite possibly. I mean, the Manics are sort of famously one of those bands where you think, oh, this is an interesting lyric, and then find out it's the title of a poem from the 18th century or something. So, you know, they, are, they do like their literature. I put this survey to twitter um 19 which is a big surprise for me gave it five stars that's that surprises me yeah i think the, the nikki fans were out in force for that one uh four stars 25 percent three stars 28 percent and two stars 28 percent so uh, really three and two stars are the other so two, yeah. there you go two and a half absolutely you were spot on i'm always spot on of course. To be honest, when I first wrote my little notes, I was going to put two and a half stars, and then I decided, you know what? 
I'm going to go with three because I really do quite like the funky bit. <laughs> it is quite good, yeah. It's an, it's, a, it's an unusual thing for them to do. The time signature, I think, is a bit odd for them. It is. It is. And I, I like that because I like it when they do... You know, there are bands that have been around for a very long time. I like it when they go, let's have a go at something a bit unexpected from us. Philemus says the lyric on and on and on it goes seems to get more relatable. Reminds me of Red Rubber in the whole two different songs bolted together thing. I guess so, because you could say like this, the first half and the second half of this song are two different songs, whereas... Red Rubber is the verses and the chorus that seem to be two different songs. Uh, Mr. Teen Word Power, I absolutely detest this track. <laughs> the first half is tolerable, no problem there. The second half, though, with its obnoxious disco beat and horrendous melody, is little more than an exercise in self-destruction. Oh, now you see, there we have me and I can't remember his username, but I'm very sorry. In complete disagreement. He adds, I voted two because one wasn't available. Oh, wow. I mean, do you know what? This is what I like about doing this, though, because just because I think that's the part of the song that I'm more into, it, I'm, I'm really interested and fascinated by other people who are like, oh, my God, no, that's a half of the song that's awful. Because I, I do. I want to hear other people's opinions. I, I like that we can share an opinion and not get shitty with each other. More people should try that. Shut up. Um. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, one last one Francesca I think she falls in the middle on this I like the disco beat I like the change in feel to a, new, a usual manic song there is not enough of a tune I would go with that I do understand that point of view yeah So here's the thing. I'm going to surprise you now. This is this is an on-air meeting. Okay. We're not going to do a B-side next episode. My finger is being rested. To celebrate on May the 20th, 25 years of Everything Must Go, we are going to do a track-by-track track take on the album. I'm not going to lie to you. It's mostly going to be five out of five stars. We'll do it in two parts. Um, for the first part, we'll aim to get it out on May the 20th. Okay. There you go. That meeting was fucking difficult, wasn't it? That was a really tricky meeting. So let's do the sign out, sign out, sign out. And I always I always get to this and never know what I'm going to say. I know. It's always an exciting surprise. I think I, think I should just stick with one. Probably. It would save you a lot of angst. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's nice and easy for me because every week I just say, we love you one time, we love you two times, we love you three fucking times. Get pissed, destroy.
Farewell. <laughs> that should be your. That should be your sign off. Get pissed. Destroy. Bye. Bye. Have a nice day.